my guest is none other than E. Michael Jones, uh, who is a, a scholar. He's an author of many excellent books of what that I've read over the years. Um, Culture Wars uh, magazine available online. He's got a new book coming up, Logos Rising. Uh, Michael, thanks for joining me today. You know, I this whole situation right now with the uh, coronavirus actually reminds me of a book you wrote years ago called Monsters from the Eyed, The Rise of Horror in Fiction. I think there are similarities, yes. As a matter of fact, I talked about them in, in the article. But go ahead, go ahead. You tell me. You do the talking now. Well, well, it's sort of like this invisible secret enemy that is permeating the world. You know, it's like a from out of space or something, some alien, and that it's lurking outside our door and that we're all here shuddering in fear. And, um, you know, I mean, I have a wife who is running around with a, with a you know, wiping everything and spraying everything and just, uh, you know, in, in a real state of fear. And I'm not suggesting here that this isn't a big problem. I mean, there is a reality, which is that we are dealing with a virus. I can speak to this. My daughter has it. She's fine. Thank God. She's better. She's going to be free of it in a matter of days, and then she'll be rejoining us again. But um, so I don't in any way question the reality here, and I tell people to be careful. However, you talk about in your essay a very interesting dichotomy between what you refer to as reality and then things of the mind. And uh, the reality is the virus. The things of the mind gets into, first of all, the origins of the virus, whether or not this is some kind of a natural phenomena or whether we should look to growing evidence that this might be a biological weapon that came out of China, and also the, pol the politics of this. Uh, it is a little too convenient how this has resulted in what is, can only be described as, as a virtual medical uh, martial law. Right. We're all stuck in our homes now. Right. We have lost our liberty in the real <laughs> right. sense. Right. You're right. Yeah. Categories of the mind and categories of reality. Uh, and uh, I tried to point out that for centuries now, uh, the English ideology is to basically base their political system uh, or some category of the mind on an indisputable category of reality, as if to say their policies are as indisputable as the reality that they are talking about. Well, that's not the case. They're two separate things. And uh, the best example I can give uh, would be uh, feminism. Okay? Mm -hmm. Woman, obviously the world is divided up between men and women. You can't deny that there are women out there. It's uh, indisputable. And then uh, the next step is, well, if you accept that, then you have to accept women's rights. Right? Mm -hmm. Well, w women deserve rights, don't they? That's indisputable, right? And so the next step is, well, you have to accept abortion. Well, wait a minute. Well, how did I get from A to B here? Something right. happened. Someone just pulled a fast one. And the fast one that they pulled is substituting a quick switch between a category of the mind, a category of reality to suddenly a category of the mind. And I think we're seeing that happening before our eyes before our eyes. Now, I, I have lots of correspondence all over the world, and I just got a call yesterday from a, a friend in Delhi, uh, India, and India is under lockdown. This is the mm -hmm. entire subcontinent of India. Incredible. That's yeah. 1.2 billion people, 
and and uh, how many cases of corona how many deaths of coronavirus do they have in india do you know maybe a handful they have 27 deaths yeah i can't i can't can't, math was never my strong suit but i can't even calculate what percentage that is of 1.2 billion so you put you basically lock down the entire country uh, because of 27 deaths. I mean, I was in Calcutta. They, they pick up that many bodies every morning of people who just drop dead on the streets of Calcutta. Uh, and in doing this, you they have in, created enormous economic dislocation, primarily because there is a class of people in India. They're known as the untouchables or the Dalits. Mm-hmm. And these people live from hand to mouth. And... They uh, are are basically day laborers. They get hired a day at a time. And at the end of the day, they get their salary and then they go home and they, they buy food and that's how they survive. Well, they're all out of work. They are all completely out. Now, this is millions of people who are now uh, heading back to their traditional home in India. So these are people. Now, if you're interested in containing the spread of a disease, you've got a group, a population here that doesn't have access to uh, normal Western hygiene, who are now marching through the country and potentially spreading the very disease Mm -hmm. that they are claiming that they want to contain. So there is an element of irrationality that's starting to emerge. And in this irrationality, I think we start to see that the hand of the government and what the hand of social engineering and what the government hopes to achieve by manipulating this disease. I think that if we look at it from a strictly health standpoint, we ought to hope that the world can develop, that the U.S. can develop an easy means of testing, which I think is pretty close and pretty much almost on the market now, that by which we can determine whether someone has it with a quick test. And once that's determined, and if someone has it, then only the people who have it can be sequestered and everybody else can get on with their business. And I think that's kind of what's being done, I understand, in Sweden right now, which is good. That, um, yeah, the country's continuing on it with business as usual. And people who are vulnerable or tested, like the elderly or people with pre-existing conditions, they're the ones who are being sequestered and taken care of. And um, I'm suspicious of the fact that, that none of this has been done yet. And that we, we, we are so behind in terms of having a proper test for the virus and all these other things that we should have, like, you know, masks and, and whatnot. And, um, you know, my hope is that once we can catch up with that, then it can be handled like any other disease. Once you find someone who has it, then they're kept, kept in isolation until they get better. Yeah, I think that uh, whatever it is, whether it's a bioweapon or not, it is what it is, virus. And that is going to be the vector. It's an airborne virus. And it will follow the the trajectory of every other airborne virus, even if it's more powerful and it reaches a little bit farther, let's say six feet instead of three feet. It's still going to follow the same vector. It's not a mosquito. Uh, which is the vector for malaria. It's not a snail, which is the vector for Bilharzia in East Africa. And it's Mm. going to follow the same trajectory. And I think what we're seeing is that it is. It is following the same trajectory as the flu every year. Uh, Now, there are certain places where it seems to be worse than others. And New York City is one of them. Right. And I have a correspondent in New York City, and he called me yesterday. And I said... uh, 
what's going on there? And he had a very short answer to that question. It's 9-11. Mm-hmm. This, this is a consequence of 9-11. Now, I don't know whether you remember, you're probably too young to remember this, but uh, when those buildings came down, a huge cloud of toxic material went up into the sky. Yes. And mm-hmm. what, 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 goes, what goes up must come down. And all of this dust came down on the people of New York City. Completely toxic mess. Uh, first of all, there was asbestos on all of the girders in the World Trade Center. And then you got all the toxic metals that were involved in this thing. It was a, it was a disaster. And you could see pictures around that time of people walking down the street. Their faces are covered with dust. Well, that meant that their lungs were full of dust as well. And a lot of people died as a result of that. And the people who didn't die still had impaired respiratory systems. So we're now 20 years later. These people are old now and they've got this impaired respiratory system. And these are the people that are going to die, most likely to die from the disease. So you have you've got a problem here. Okay, you've got the United States of America, which has a place like New York City, which is probably unique in all of the world and certainly unique in terms of this environmental catastrophe. And you've got people trying to make rules for everyone, according to New York City. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that doesn't make sense. I mean, the, situ- the situation here in, in South Bend, Indiana how is it similar? Well, it's similar because everywhere it's going to be older people with impaired respiratory systems who are going to be the most vulnerable here. So South Bend, Indiana, uh, we had one death from coronavirus. Mm-hmm. This one death is a man who is 82 years old. He shows up at the local hospital with pneumonia. They then test him. He tests positive. Uh, for coronavirus. Now, if we hadn't had, if we didn't have this hysteria, he never would have been tested for that. Right. Okay. But because we have the hysteria in the media, everybody's going to be tested. Now he tests positive, and the next thing he dies. So now this is a corona death. Well, mm-hmm. it's not. It wasn't. It wouldn't have been a corona death if you hadn't tested him for it. It would have just been a routine old guy shows up with pneumonia and dies. So right. you can see how the statistics are going to be going to be skewed by the hysteria and how the hysteria is being manipulated to serve certain political ends. The virus is called a novel virus, and I think that in many ways it is in that it is it is more contagious than the regular flu, and it has other characteristics that are different, which makes which which raises suspicion about whether or not this might have a biological weapon component to it. And I think there's now increasing evidence that it may. We've got Bill Gertz, who's an expert on China, who has written about a, a Wuhan biological uh, weapons factory that is right near the what's called the epicenter of the virus. And there's this guy from Harvard, this um, Lieber, who brought vials. And there's other two Chinese endocrinologists from Chicago who also were caught with vials of NIRS and SARS as they try to get out of the country. And you know, there's all these things that are developing. I think that the last I understand, the FBI is now investigating this. Um, and that brings up a question, of course, regardless of whether or not it does turn out to be the case, 
that this whole situation, the way it stands right now, is a little too convenient and a little too neat in terms of an agenda by the oligarchs, by the ruling class, the what we used to call the Eastern Seaboard liberal establishment, people who are the globalists, people who want to get rid of you know national borders and nationality and uh, individual freedom and, and all of the other things that human civilization has been trying to assert since the beginning of time. They want to create this, you know, the same thing, that, the same goal the communists had, you know, the same goal that the Nazis had. I mean, this is modern scientific socialism, a, a complete control of a people. And the whole thing in the de facto sense is exactly that. I don't think this, in fact, I can say clearly that this sort of thing has never happened in this country before where people are literally, uh, you know, inside and that there are there are informal and even some formal laws would force them to be inside. And you could face consequences if you go outside. I mean, that is complete and total control by the state. And, uh, you know, it just looks to me to be a little too convenient in terms of fulfilling their agenda. Although I think it's backfiring, but nevertheless, what say you with regard to the uh, the juxtaposition of the virus and the reaction and the what we might call the uh, the oligarchs the international order well uh, there's there's evidence of of planning here first first of all i think that the the bioweapons case is plausible now it could be that it escaped accidentally you know if you're smuggling this material in your socks on a commercial airline you're not taking precautions it could have gotten out accidentally, but it was headed back to Wuhan. And Wuhan was a place where the United States government was paying this uh, Chinese scientist, Xi Zheng, uh, to genetically engineer viruses as weapons. So mm. we know we know that was happening. Incredible. Uh, uh, wh- you're not making weapons unless you're planning to use them at some point. Uh, and maybe this was a the time they thought that they could get away with it. Uh, China, I think the United States has motive to attack China. I think we've already been in a, a struggle with China over trade issues. And uh, the Chinese government certainly has claimed, feels that there was an attack. Uh, and th- th- this would, uh, in many ways, it would be the ideal situation because you've, you've already established that they've got the stuff over there. Uh, uh, it would be easy to see how it could escape from a, a, a lab. And then you could do it deliberately and they, they would say, oh, it escaped accidentally and, and there would be plausible deniability all the way around. So mm-hmm. I can see how that would happen. It's also uh, not coincidence that you've got a serious situation in Iran. The United States is a, in a state of war with Iran. There's no question about it. Right. And would someone like uh, Mike Pompeo have uh, scruples? about doing something like this, I I don't see it. I don't see the man has scruples about anything. He's capable of anything when it comes to a place like Iran. So I think it's plausible, and especially when you consider that the other, there is no other explanation. What's the other explanation? That it mutated from a a market? That it simply happened? Mm -hmm. That's not much of an explanation. This is a a stronger explanation. And of course, ABC immediately, the mainstream press immediately uh, wrote an article saying the title was something like "Sorry, conspiracy theorist, it's not a weapon" or something like that. Which right. the title right. is so tendentious, you begin to wonder, well, maybe maybe they're protesting too much here. 
You know, maybe maybe they're, they're, they maybe what the real story here is that the mainstream media have lost control of this story, that the internet is driving this story, and the mainstream media are trying to catch up with with uh, with the internet uh, in that regard. But I think that uh, I think it's plausible. But as I said before, even if it even if it is a bioweapon, and even if it is d- designed to do you harm, it still has to travel like a virus, which means it's going to follow the same trajectory that the, the, the this disease has followed in the past. And uh, uh, I think that it's doing that. It's doing that, and and the the results, as I as I said, the it results in India. Uh, are an extreme example, but they don't warrant a total shutdown of everything in the country. And so when you do have this total shutdown and then you do have prior evidence uh, like the Rockefeller Foundation, I quote that study scenario planning of the Rockefeller Foundation. It's almost exactly about like what happened. Bill mm-hmm. Gates did the same thing in November, another scenario event. And then you combine that with the fact that uh, the oligarchs were checking out uh, for out throughout 2019. Uh, the, more CEOs resigned in 2019 than any period in history. Uh, why did that happen? Was that just coincidence, or did they sense something was coming and they better cash out and get cash out at the top of the market? Mm. And if that isn't convincing enough to you, then you have the representative of Burr from North Carolina, who's on the subcommittee about health. And he cashes out day, within days, you know, before the crash right, in the right. market because he's got information about some type of health uh, uh, issue coming down, coming down the pike. So I think if you put all these things together, you can see uh, an element of orchestration uh, involved here uh, and that there seems to have been some planning and that we are, they are using this to distract us from other important things that they don't want us to see. Uh, yeah, as far as the cashing out part, I think the same thing happened just before the um, the mortgage meltdown of 2008, that, that you had uh, big, big CEOs like like the head of Wachovia and others cash out just before the, the fall. And you could even go back to the Great Depression, where some of the oligarchs converted their their stock standing into, into real property and and objects of art and other things to to preserve their wealth while everything else collapsed, and then they walked in and bought it up at a bargain. So, yeah, I mean, there were people who who might have inside information, or they at least sense that something is coming down the pike. You know, we're talking about theoreticals here in terms of the um, you know the United States being involved. I mean, I really have a lot of problems with that. I, I mean, I you know I think that it's probably more likely that China was involved in it. They don't. I mean, the communist Chinese don't care about their own population. They would be more likely the uh, the, the 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 bad player here, in terms of um, releasing this biological weapon and then letting it spread to other countries, uh, particularly the United States now. Um, but of course, you and I can't know for sure because we don't have inside information. Um, no. What we do know, however, is that the the reaction to this event has played right into the hands of the oligarchs and also there's a there's a there's a plus side to it which we can get into next but right now i want to talk about the actual reaction which is that this is the dream of the communists of the you know of of the um, you know of of every totalitarian system going all the way back in time the ultimate complete control of people 
their movement. We are being moved around like cords of wood. We, can, we can't leave the home. We have lost, in the de facto sense, all of our rights guaranteed by or recognized by the Constitution. You know, you have, uh, you can now in some quarters, I've heard already that people are being at least fined. And if you're fined, that means you could be arrested because you've committed a crime for leaving their home, for going to a supermarket, for sneezing in public. I mean, this is something that, look, I'm not going to deny the fact that we have a contagious disease here. I can speak to it. It's, it's real. But it all, you know, the politics of this is very concerning. I mean, we, we have, uh, you know, we, we've basically rolled over and, and given up freedoms in, in, in the name of um, safety, which is exactly what Benjamin Franklin warned us not to do. Are, are you talking about the United States when you're saying people are being fined for leaving yes. their house? Yes, I am. There's a couple I, of- I knew I knew about reports of that from uh, from Europe, but I didn't know that there was happening in the United States as well. I, I think there's already been. Uh, I saw I saw the Drudge Report this morning. There's there's been reports from a couple of places around the country where people are being fined and where people are being charged. There's a, there's one guy being charged as a terrorist because he sneezed in the supermarket, and the claim is that he did it deliberately and. You know, I mean, it's just we, we seem to be moving down that that path. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, you know, th- I'm not saying that this is happening in the literal sense, in the de facto sense in the United States. But it does seem we are we seem to be we're being conditioned for it. We're being conditioned to accept it, I think, and to look upon anybody who violates these ideas because they're running around as being, you know, enemies of the people, enemies of the state. You know, and, and uh, I just, uh, you know, it's it's very concerning, and uh, and we can all feel the practical results of it right now. Yeah, I think it's a combination of AIDS and 9/11. I mean, okay. I've, I've been I've, I've been thinking a lot about uh, Hegel uh, lately. Uh, mm-hmm. the, there's a whole chapter on Hegel in Logos Rising, uh, and uh, a kind of dialectic progression here. So you have AIDS, which is basically a disease that was uh, a lifestyle disease among homosexuals, which then got instrumentalized when uh, Margaret Heckler announced in 1984 that it was caused by a virus. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you say it's caused by a virus, well, then you immediately absolve any of the people who get it from any responsibility for contracting it. Right. which is the exact opposite of what it meant before that time, because everybody knew it was a homosexual disease. It was based on homosexual lifestyle practices. And, and uh, you know, all right, I'm not, gonna, I'm not one of those people. I'm not going to get it. So tough luck. I'm, I feel bad for you guys, but it's your own damn fault for right. acting that way. Well, all that changed is when you, when you turned it into a virus. And then on top of that, when you, as soon as you have a virus, well, then you start talking about a cure. And she announced in the same press conference that there was going to be a cure soon. And then so when the homosexuals, they hear this and then they start, well, what does soon mean? Like, I need it right now. I'm dying or something like that. And the pressure mm-hmm. starts mounting and they collapse, cave into the pressure. The government does. And they approve AZT which is chemotherapy. It was never allowed as medicine. It was so toxic. They wouldn't even, they wouldn't go near it as medicine. Suddenly because of pressure, people like Matilda Krim, for example, Mm 
uh, putting pressure on the government, they approved it. And it killed uh, lots, probably more homosexuals than the disease was killing. Right. Uh Uh, And and the difference between Magic Johnson and Arthur Ashe is that Magic Johnson started taking it, felt sick and said, I'm not taking this anymore. And he's alive today. And Arthur Ashe kept taking it and he's dead. So that's the first step, you know, okay, you got to, you, they, they declare it's a virus. In other words, whatever it is, there's a category of nature. They apprehend it with their category of the mind. And they say it's a virus when lots of people said, no, it's not a virus at all. Uh, And then they act on that. And then you've got the, the, the result. And then you have 9-11, which is another chapter in disaster capitalism, where you use an event. It's an undeniable event. Look at look at your TV screen. I mean, there's the tower. Yes, of it course. came down. Well, look at it. It's obvious that it happened. So therefore, you have to do what we say. Well, wait a minute. First of all, first of all, you didn't even explain how the tower came down, did you? And then you never explained Building Seven, did you? Nothing touched Building Seven, and that came down just like the the same way the other one did, as free fall, which mm-hmm. is. Uh, indication that it was demolished by explosives but that's never been answered and only and if you say that and you're a professor you will get fired from your job so that now we have a new culprit and now it's a terrorist okay so you you the the hegelian dialectic says that's step one now you have step two you combine the two of them and now you have step three where as as you mentioned if you sneeze in a supermarket you're a bioterrorist and you can be apprehended now for the state of your uh, um, medical condition or whatever. But it's all done in the name of science. And all we're trying to do is help you. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, what, what we've realized, I think, is that this is a confected narrative. It's a category of the mind that is imposed on reality to uh, allow for certain political measures. That's what we're seeing. I, I think it's inescapable, even with all of the unanswered questions. It's inescapable that that's what's happening. And the the best a, a classic example in this regard is France. France had yellow vest protesters since 1918, sure. and Macron couldn't couldn't do anything. No matter what he did, the demonstrations would not stop. Well, this solved that problem. And now you have medical martial law. And now you do have a situation where you have to basically download a permission slip from the Internet to be able to go outside and go to the grocery store or walk your dog. Uh, That's the situation. And then, okay, so that solved Macron's uh, political problem for him. Okay, but then you have to look into, well, what is exactly the type of world that is being created here? I mean, you mentioned horror movies. There's a sense in which this this is uh, like a scenario from a horror movie. But we live in a world now where you can't go to church, but you can get an abortion. Mm-hmm. Who decides? Who Asha, decides Asha. that church? Who decides that abortion is an essential service and the church is not an essential service? Who makes that decision? I, I'm starting to see a pattern emerging here. In other words, you're creating a world for us according to what you think is important, you meaning the oligarchs. And I'm starting to see, I'm starting to understand that world now because of what you just did. The other thing, of course, is pornography. Uh, You know, you can't go to church, but 
Pornhub is now going to offer free premium subscriptions to its pornography channel mm-hmm. uh, to the people of Italy. Just, just to show it. what great humanitarians uh-huh. they are. Just what okay, they need. So, so again, the picture is the picture of the world. You're using this. You, the oligarchs, are using this event. And I'm, I'm going to admit that it's real. It's not as bad as you're saying, but it's real. You're using it as an excuse to introduce the world that you want us to live in. And that world means, you know, free to watch pornography, but can't go to church. Okay. Uh, there are yeah, other I, aspects of it as well. You know, there's the financial aspect of it. You know, this has been used to cover over the crash of the stock market. And the fact that Mr. Mnookin is going to spend give $4 trillion to his friends. Now, to distract us from that, he's going to give each of us a check for $1,000. Mm-hmm. You know, again, this um, is... Yeah, you know, I think that, first of all, the uh, I think that the Drudge Report today said, pointed out that um, there is a minister who is being fined because he held a session in, I think, Florida, like a megachurch right. type session, and I know that New York City has said that they're going to shut down synagogues of Orthodox Jews because they're not, you know, they're still, they still have their minions. They're not stopping that. So, yeah, I mean, religion's under assault. Um, as far as the, um, you know, the AIDS virus, I mean, I was critical at the time of the fact that I think the gay community and their leadership ignored the problem because they were more interested in the sexual revolution than they were in the life and the safety of their own people. So they were like, go to the bathhouses, just live your life, do whatever you want to do. And uh, in fact, I was criticized for that when I ran for Congress against Barney Frank in 2004, that I was, oh, you're homophobe for bringing that up. And I said, look, Frank could have saved lives as a gay leader if he had simply stood up and said, look, let's not do these practices right now until we get beyond this disease. But that didn't happen because they were more interested in the sexual revolution. As far as 9-11, the government stepped in and promoted the homosexual as the ideal citizen. They stepped in and saved homosexuality because they knew they were going to use it, uh, as we've seen, you know, recently. With right, and in this case, they did so at the the expense of, of, of tens of thousands of gay people who died horrible deaths, and they didn't care about that. All they cared about was advancing their their sexual agenda. Now, right. you know, as far as 9-11, yes, that, that you know, th- there's something about that that seems fishy to me. I don't know anything insider on it, but I do think that there was a problem with international Islamic terrorism and jihad. That wasn't just in this country. That was happening all over the world. Um, that seems to have abated somewhat, but I do think that was a real threat. That doesn't mean that we had to suspend civil liberties and we all have to take our shoes off at the airport every time we go on a plane. But it was a reasonable thing, I think, for this government to take uh, precautions against that for the same reason we took precautions against communism in the 1940s and 50s when that I was on the all of those things were instrumentalized. I don't think I don't think those those dudes with box cutters did it. I think that communism was also instrumentalized. It was the biggest and and one of, if you want to get into this, one of the biggest victims, in my opinion, was the Catholic Church through the, C- the CIA's instrumentalization of the anti-communist crusade. There was never, never the threat to the United States that the government claimed. 
during that period. Okay, well, well, look, Mike, we're going to have to agree to disagree on certain things with regard to that. What I will say is that the Catholic Church deserves a lot of credit for being one of the bulwarks against communism. You had Cardinal Menzenti in Hungary being put into prison. You had a cardinal in, I think, Yugoslavia as well, I think, in, in yeah. Croatia. And that these men stood up against... That, yeah, they, they stood up against communism. And of course, John Paul II, I think, played a very key role in collapsing the Soviet Union when he held mass in Poland, the largest gathering in history. I think there was almost a million people came out and he spoke about God and he spoke about Christ and he, he, he preached. And that was the beginning of the end. They couldn't fight that. Same thing with uh, Reagan in Moscow. He spoke again, about God, again. he went to church. But again, Chuck, I think we have to distinguish between categories of reality and categories of the mind here. Okay, I'm not, I'm not going to deny that there was such a thing called communism. I'm not going to deny that it was a terrible thing. Okay, but at the same time, it got the meaning of that for Americans got imposed on us by people who had a certain political agenda in mind. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about people like C.D. Jackson, who was simultaneously uh, employed by the CIA and Time Life, Time Magazine, uh, who said in 53 that the United States had lost its best salesman. Who was he referring to? He was referring to Stalin uh, and the death of Stalin. And this was instrumentalized for certain ends. And I think that the Catholic Church... Uh, was taken for a ride during the 1950s and basically encouraged to side with a group of people that uh, did not have their interest in mind and was working okay. against them simultaneously. Well, that's you're, you're obviously the expert on Catholic issues. I mean, from my outsider perspective, I think that the 1950s was the pinnacle of Catholic morality in the world. I mean, it was really stood up for the, the right side and and continue to do so. Um, I read a book a while ago um, about this um, by a Catholic thinker, um, something about goodbye, good men, I believe it was called. I don't know if you're yeah. familiar with that. And it dealt with uh, this pinnacle and then how things started to degrade when you had the social engineers go into the seminary and start to talk about legitimizing homosexuality and whatnot. And that he shows, yes. he documents how that, that they, they kind of wormed their way into the subvert of the church. But that's a different subject. Um, I want to get back to the, um, the virus and what we're dealing with right now. The, the aspect of this that I think has backfired on the establishment, even whether or not they caused it, whether or not it's biologic, the thing is that they're riding it and they're using it. It's like what Rahm Emanuel said, never let a good crisis go to waste, and they're not letting it go to waste so quickly. I think a good example is that every time President Trump, who I think is on our side, speaks up and mentions, hey, we have this possible cure here, uh, the, the chloroquine or whatever, they attack that. Um, you know, anything, you know, in, in other words, they, they want to prolong it long enough to really do damage on both our, our, our economy and on our psyche. Um, but the positive aspect is that people are realizing, and, and we kind of talked about this before going on the air, that it is a great tradition in America, it's a great tradition in humanity, to be prepared for crisis individually, to have enough supplies to last you 
you know, four to six weeks to, to do things at home with your family, to homeschool. I think this is an opportunity, and they're already complaining, that people are realizing they don't need these massive government-run high schools and schools, that they can teach their children their way at home, and that these children are going to end up better off. They're going to learn how to think cognitively, as opposed to being sitting there in a propaganda room and being preached to and, and treated like, like monkeys. You know, so there are positive things that can come out of this if we understand them and if we talk about them openly and, and start to use them. And then at the end of the day, once this thing is over, the other thing is that offices and businesses are now realizing that they don't need these massive office buildings in the downtown cities because people can work from home. They can telecommute. My wife is telecommuting. You know, everybody can sit at home with their computer and telecommute and then have time with their children, have time with their family, have time with their spouse, have time to go out and walk around. It's, you know, we're not going to be like tethered to these big offices. So I think there are going to be some positive shifts, perhaps, in our society, societal shifts. You know, these are the sorts of things stuff that are studied by sociologists that are good and that are possibly quite positive. What do you think, Mike? Well, I said that uh, <clears throat> there's never been a time when God hasn't been in charge of human history. And and uh, Hegel talked about the cunning of reason, how the, the intentions of wicked men uh, get thwarted by God and turned into good. Uh, and I can see that here to some extent. Uh, mm -hmm. Roberto de Mattei talked about the end of globalism. A lot of people are talking about the end of globalism. Yes. And suddenly, suddenly uh, it turns out that borders are important. I mean, we're, exactly. we're, we're, we're all talking about the border between Indiana and Michigan. Whoever talked yeah. about the border between Indiana and Michigan before? This, but um, if you look at, let's say, the difference between Italy and Germany right now, it seems that there's a significant difference in how the virus is uh, uh, acting in those two countries because they have two very different cultures. Just to give one instance, uh, northern Italy is a very polluted place and the lungs of the people there are compromised. There's no question about it. Germany is a country that has always taken uh, environmental issues seriously. And so they may not have the same lung problem in Germany that they had in Italy. So I mean, what we're saying here is that there is a, a real difference between these two countries. And the borders are important because they define real differences. This is, these are categories of reality. German and Italian is not something that you're imposing on. It's not your category of the mind that you're imposing on these people. That's a real, it exists in reality. They're two different languages, they're two different cultures, and they're two different reactions to the disease. That being said, uh, this doesn't change the intentions of the wicked. And, and we have to uh, be aware of what their intentions are, and we have to think of how we're going to resist them, at least, certainly at least intellectually. Right. Sure. So, for example, right now we have uh, people coming out of the woodwork uh, like Jeffrey Sachs. Jeffrey Sachs uh, is now the big battle is now how long are these conditions going to last? Jeffrey Sachs wants them to last until July. He's talking mm -hmm. about July. Right. Sure. Well, I, I think in order to evaluate this man's 
um, suggestions, we have to understand who he is. Who he is. He's he's a, a notorious looter. Uh, he 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 is a uh, has wrecked economies throughout the world. He wrecked the economy in Bolivia and brought the communists to power as a result. He wrecked the economy through privatization in Poland after the fall of communism. And his most notorious example was wrecking the economy of Russia by handing it over. <coughs> I hope that's not coronavirus. Oh, by boy. handing it over to uh, eight oligarchs, seven of whom were Jews. Mm -hmm. Jeffrey Sachs is a Jew. Uh, he was working for Harvard University, which is a Jewish institution, in case you didn't know that. The head of Harvard University was Larry Summers at this point, also a Jew who has failed upward for his entire life. What we have is a group of people. Uh, I think that the, the strategy of Jeffrey Sachs is clear. First of all, Jeffrey Sachs should be ashamed of himself and should spend his life in a monastery doing penance for all of the misery he's caused in this world. He's not someone we need to look up to as an expert. Okay. But secondly, there's an agenda here and I think it's up to us to understand it. And the agenda seems to me pretty clear. Okay. Convince Donald Trump to continue this draconian lockdown until he wrecks the economy. And then by wrecking the economy, he will ensure that he will not get elected in the fall. Now, this is not in Donald Trump's interest. It's not, I don't think it's in the country's interest, but it is in the oligarchs interest. And Jeffrey Sachs is a representative of the oligarchs. And I think he, we have to be aware of what's going on. You know, as we said, God can bring good out of evil. Uh, that's for sure. But we have to understand what the evil is and what we're dealing with too at the same time. I think that, um, I mean, I'm not all that familiar with Jeffrey Sachs, and I'll certainly look into that. I think that um, whether or not he or others, you know, um, what the, whether they worship on Saturday or Sunday is not all that relevant. Um, you know, you have these oligarchs across the board in terms of putting out various shingles that, that proclaim religious backgrounds, including Catholics, and we could name several. But the, the relevant thing with them is that... Um, they form an elite that has struggled for power going all the way back to the time of Nimrod. I mean, we can look at this biblically if you want. And that is people who believe that God should be overthrown in heaven and that they have some kind of divine right to control the world and do so. Many of them actually believe that they're doing so for altruistic reasons. They've convinced themselves. But it doesn't matter to me whether they think that or not. The fact is, they don't have a right to control me or anyone else. And they are attempting, I mean, we could go back to Alexander the Great. I mean, this is a movement that's occurred in every generation since Adam and Eve conspired by eating the apple from the forbidden fruit. You know, that they would know all, they would have all knowledge. They would know good and evil. They would, in other words, they would take over from God. Man would overthrow God in heaven, basically, and control his own destiny and his own life and the and the world and it is a it is a conspiracy and it has existed in every generation this generation is no different and every generation has had people who are conscious of the fact that god is sovereign and that we are created in the image of god we're not god but as such 
we grant government, we grant earthly powers limited power so that they can preserve our right to be free and to be, in a sense, sovereign as images of God, and that this is a conspiracy against that. And whether or not this virus is accidental or real, this is going to be exploited by those who want to undermine our individual freedom. And, this, you know, our, our right, you know, the Constitution clearly states, and it's a reflection, I think, of reality, when it says that we are created, you know, we're all endowed by our creator. That comes right out of the book of Genesis. I mean, that's that's biblical. That's, you know, God said that God created man and woman, and it does say man and woman in his image. You know, and that that, that these people want to subvert that. They want to say, we're the ones who are in charge. We're the international rulers. I don't care whether they, you know, have a mezuzah or a cross on the door. The point is that they're anti-religion. They're anti-God. And that's the key. Right. I agree. I agree. And one of the great things about uh, the Internet is that, that we have this ability to have these conversations. Uh, and I'm grateful for that. And I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity you've given me to talk about this. Uh, but we have to name who we're talking about. OK, and it's uh, you're right. It's not ju- it's not just Jews. It's Catholics, too. OK. And the center of this Catholic conspiracy is, is the Jesuits in this country. And the Jesuit magazine America uh, just did an article uh I quote it in in the article I've written where the guy begins by saying, I am a scientist. Cancel mass. Well, what you're doing here is you're using this fake science uh, to shut down any discussion. Okay, and then you're using the shut shutting down the discussion to basically impose your views on everyone else. And we mm-hmm. can't object. I mean, I can't object to this guy because he's a scientist. What am I he's supposed wrapped to himself say? In the, no, he's wrapped himself in the flag of science, just like what Darwin did. But the, you it's, know, it's, that, it's, yeah, it's more than that. You're anti-science. It's yeah. more than that. He's 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 telling that he's using this to impose this regimen on Catholics, on fellow Catholics. Right. So you got you got Catholics involved. You got Jews involved. But we have to be able to name who these people are because if I agree. we don't, if no, we I don't. Agree. Then we're just saying, oh, we're not, we're not helping, we're not moving the ball down the field, because right. now we you. know who's doing it, and now we know they, there's the agenda. The Jesuits are a fifth column in the Catholic Church. They are the main promoters of homosexuality in the Catholic Church today. James Martin is the main promoter of homosexuality in the Catholic Church. He's a Jesuit. He's on the editorial staff of America Magazine to publish that. I mean, if I can't talk about these people by name, then we're crippled. You know, we have to no, be able course, to mention I agree, people I agree. by name. Because if we don't, if we don't, when we shut up, all we're going, all the people are going to think is, oh yeah, oligarchs. But if we do mention the names and the people start reading, then the name pops up again. They'll be uh, immunized, to use a, a, a relevant term. They'll be immunized because they understand the agenda that these people are promoting. No, look, I agree with that, and I've been critical of the ADL and some of the establishment Jewish organizations, which I think really are socialist. As far as the Jesuits, I mean, I'm not in a position to know. I think that they do a pretty good job running Boston College, which is over near where I live. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, maybe you might be too sweeping, but that's a Catholic question. 
Um, no, it's I do. not a Catholic question. It, it, okay, you're right. It is. We're talking about Catholics. It's a question about the way this agenda gets opposed, imposed on Americans. These are the commissars that impose this, the oligarchic rule, on Catholics. The ADL okay. are the commissars that impose it on Jews. I agree. Fear. They spread right. fear throughout the Jewish population. It's anti-Semitism. We have to do something. We're going crazy. And they, the, in both instances, you have a group of commissars taking control of their constituency for the benefit of the oligarchs. No, I, look, I, I'm with you on this one. We're on the same side. Um, I want to just ask you a little practical question here, which is with regard to church attend, attending mass. Um, in my Jewish community, we're doing this thing with the Zoom, and we're we're not having we can't have a full minion because you have to be there in person. But at least we are having da daily prayers. My wife gets a lot out of this. We still can say cottage for the dead. You know, there are certain things that are being done to try to continue. And if anything, there are more people who are interested in it than might have otherwise been going to the synagogue. So is the Catholic Church doing anything equivalent to that in terms of making sure that people get some, you know, you, you can't obviously have the full sacrament unless you're there, but are, they, are there any services being done with Zoom or anything online? Yeah, there, there are televised masses. Unfortunately, you cannot have a Catholic mass on television. You can, it's impossible. Right, no, the same the, thing the, with the, the, the Jew. The, Jew the Jewish equivalent would be something like uh, the temple, uh, animal sacrifice on television. Well, you can't do no, that. No, and you can't, you can't have certain aspects of the Jewish service on television either. I mean, you have well, to the, be... The, the crucial aspect of the Mass is Holy Communion. Obviously, you can right. have the first part of the Mass, which is the reading of the Word of God. Obviously, you can do that. And most Protestant services are simply that. It's the reading of the Word of God, and then there's a sermon, and there's some singing. But that's only half of the Catholic Mass. The second half is when the priest consecrates the bread and wine and turns it into the body and blood of Christ, and then you receive that. Well, mm -hmm. you can't download Holy Communion from your computer. And so as a result, what you have here is a picture of the Mass and not the Mass itself. And so the equivalent would be, you know, like, gee, I really feel hungry. I think I'll turn on a food show uh, and watch it on okay. television so that I don't feel hungry anymore. That's not going to work. And the same no. thing, that's, that's the problematic aspect with mass. And I think that the bishops, the first of all, the bishop, the first time around uh, said, okay, we've got a problem here. Uh, no reception. Nobody, we don't have anybody drinking out of the same cup. That's not a good idea. Uh, Take, take the communion host on your hand uh, and separate in the pew. And that seemed to be a reasonable uh, accommodation. Then sure. they banned the whole thing. The whole banning the whole thing is not reasonable. That is no, not reasonable. And I think it has created more problems than it's going to solve. You now have a, a church state problem because the question, as you brought up, this man in Florida now, that, yeah. that, as far as I know, it's a Protestant service. It could be done over television, okay? There's no difference, okay? Right. But now you've got a church-state problem of saying, well, who's in charge now? And, and, and we're, we're approaching Easter. Who gets to decide 
whether we have, celebrate Easter or not, okay, the church or the state. Or the next question is, okay, all right, maybe we don't celebrate Easter. Trump has said it's going to end on April 30th. Who decides when it's going to end? Who decides when we're allowed, when the priest is allowed to celebrate the mass? There is no precedent for this in American history. We have the, the, it's not, it wasn't originally the separation of church and state, but it became de facto the separation of church and state, which means in this instance, the church has no, the state has no right to regulate the services of the churches. How are we going to resolve this issue? No, look at, I mean, I, I tend to agree with you on this. I mean, I think there's been a heroic story, at least one case where, a priest is, is delivering confession in the parking lot, wearing a blindfold, sitting on a chair and, uh, and you know, conducting the service, which I think is amazing and great. Probably more people are getting confession than otherwise might because of uh, there's a sense like, hey, you know, the church is under siege. We have to come out and do something. As far as synagogue goes, the reason that, you know, the Orthodox uh, synagogues are being threatened in New York and they're saying we're going to shut the whole thing down is because you, you have to have 10 adult males who have been bar mitzvahed in order to have a minion. And that, that the minion, there are certain prayers and certain functions that can only be done with a minion. Without a minion, you can't do it. So th- this is a problem. You know, I mean, you know, the, there is the televised thing, the Zoom thing, but they can't really do the whole service because it's not a minion. you kind of a minion on a computer. You have to be there in witness. You have to have, right. you have 10 so, yeah, I mean, it is, this is a, a big church-state issue, as you say. Anyway, Mike, we're reaching toward the end of the program, so I'd like you to talk a little bit about your soon-to-be-released book, Logos Rising. Um, it's, uh, I think you mentioned that it's supposed to be uh, available first of the month, which is only a week or two away. No, no, it's well, tomorrow. There we go. It's tomorrow. Okay, we, we, the copies are being shipped today. We get them probably tomorrow, and we start fulfilling orders on Thursday. So it's that immediate. We have uh, had an, a, a large initial response, and we're we, we're close to selling out the first printing. Mm-hmm. So if if you can, these are the people that are going to get that we're going to send the copies to first. The people who are on the list. So if you want to be sure about getting a copy, you can go to culturewars.com. Okay. Uh, and and uh, sign up for a copy. Now, I, I what what did I say before? I said that there's never been a time in history when God wasn't in charge of human history. The the Hebrew scriptures are evidence of that, an intimate connection between God and the the course of human history. Greeks didn't understand it, the Hebrews did, and then Christianity merged the two of them. And so he had a metaphysical understanding of history. But the point here is that most people don't see that. And why mm-hmm. don't you see that? Because you don't have the eyes to see that because you don't have the perspective. And that's why I wrote Logos Rising. Okay, the first part of the book is called The History of Logos. In other words, where, where does this word come from? How did it develop? But the second part is called The Logos of History. And that explains, you know, once you understand this power of God, you understand that he's intimately involved in the development of history. And this I think will give you the eyes to see how it's developing, how it's developing, how, how, so that you can have the perspective to deal with issues like this and not just go crazy and jump off a bridge because the world is coming to an end. That's the type of panic that the culture is spreading. This is the type of book that's going to give you the perspective so you can deal with that with the big picture in mind. That's, mm-hmm. that's why I think it's, 
to be honest with you, I think it's the book for this moment. It's, it's the right time. Yep. Some that you need some type of perspective, and this is it. Hegel said no, the sorry. Hegel said the owl, the owl of Minerva only flies at twilight. What's he mean? The owl of Minerva, wisdom, only comes twilight. Well, we're we're seeing the twilight of the gods here, the twilight of the empire, and that releases us, you know, from the the hold that it had on our minds, and we can see it in a much better perspective. And that's what this book is about. Well, no, it's excellent timing for this book. I'm looking forward to reading it um, and maybe and definitely hopefully having you back to talk about it as, as things unfold and checking in with you, E. Michael Jones, um, you know, mentioned, of course, culturewars.com for the uh, for the magazine. And you've got a YouTube channel and you're, you know, you're up there with doing a lot of great interviews. Uh, so, um, Mike, thanks again. Thank you very much for joining me this afternoon. My Good pleasure, morning. Chuck. Good to talk right. to you. Same here. Thanks a lot. Okay.